Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. Well, Jordan, it's official. We're going into July. Yep, we're actually already there, recording this episode on Thursday, July 2nd. And because it's that time of year, we again got some of the biggest opinions of the term this week. That includes the much-anticipated abortion decision where Chief Justice Roberts cast the tie-breaking vote to side with abortion rights. But he also authored a couple of opinions delivering significant wins for conservatives on religion and separation of powers. And those were just three of this week's five opinions. The court still has eight to go, so Kimberly, we got some stuff to talk about this week. All right, so this is the first time that the Roberts Court has gone beyond the last week of June since Chief Justice Roberts took the helm in 2005. And of course, we're dealing with a bit of a different situation this term. We had those 10 cases argued in May, so not too surprising that the justices didn't finish by their usual end of June cutoff. Well, that's right. And so importantly, the court typically hears its last arguments in mid-April. This time around, they went all the way until May 14th. Now, the average time this term from argument to decision has been 123 days. So turning them all around by Monday, which is the next time we're expecting opinions, would require them to turn those rulings around in more like 50 to 60 days. That's quite the lift, even for the court's fastest writer, Justice Ginsburg. These days, she's turning around opinions in just over 70 days from argument. Compare that to the chief, who's averaging closer to 160 days as he wrestles with how to use his powerful median vote. All right, well, SCOTUS, let's get to work, all right? Well, they're keeping us busy. They added another conference for this week for Wednesday that we got orders from this morning. So first, before getting into all that, I'll note a case that the court denied on the orders list on Monday, and that was over dissent from only Justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg. The court rejected an appeal from federal death row prisoners challenging the Justice Department's lethal injection protocol. And so that clears a major obstacle to the federal government resuming executions after 17 years, and that's going to start on July 13th unless there's some other sort of intervention. And actually, the lead attorney at the Supreme Court for those prisoners, Kate Stetson of Hogan Levels, is going to come on the show a little later to chat about the cases we got this week and what else to look for as the justices wrap up. Now, there wasn't a whole lot else on Monday's order list, but today there was a lot of action. Kimberly, can you start us off on that? Sure. So we actually got four grants for next term. Perhaps most notably, the court granted review of the Trump administration's appeal, which seeks to keep the still redacted portions of the Mueller report under wraps. Regardless of how the case gets decided, for now, it pretty much guarantees that House Democrats won't be able to access that confidential information before the 2020 election. And after the grant, House Judiciary Chair Gerald Nadler said, quote, unfortunately, President Trump and Attorney General Barr are continuing to try to run out the clock on any and all accountability. Why I am confident their legal arguments will fail, it is now all the more important for the American people to hold the president accountable at the ballot box in November. And so we also got grants in cases involving Nazi looted art claims and corporate liability for human rights abuses. The court also sent a couple of abortion cases back to an appeals court that had sided with abortion rights for further review, uh, suggesting that a majority of the court might not be interested in going further to rule in favor of abortion rights than it did in this week's ruling that we're going to talk about. At least not a majority of the court. Right. 
So the justices also rejected an appeal from the Texas Democratic Party. They wanted the ju- justices to expedite their appeal, and in particular, they're, they're challenging the state's rule that only 65 and older voters can take advantage of no-excuse vote-by-mail. The court rejected that request to speed up the appeal, but the litigation continues in the lower courts and could be back at the Supreme Court as the election nears. So before we bring on our guests, let's chat briefly about those five opinions that we got this week. Perhaps the most notable was June Medical against Russo, which was the last case actually argued at the Supreme Court back in March. Oh, good times, good times. Yep. Um, So this was the case challenging a Louisiana law that required abortion doctors to get admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. The court in 2016, in a 5-3 to three decision, struck down a nearly identical Texas law saying that the benefits to women's health, of which there were practically none, didn't outweigh the burden the law would impose on those seeking an abortion, namely shuttering most of the state's abortion clinics. And so Chief Justice Roberts dissented in that 2016 case, but here, this week, he was the critical fifth vote to strike down the Louisiana law in this case. Justice Breyer wrote the plurality opinion for the Fort Democrat appointees, saying that the law places an undue burden on women seeking abortions. And Roberts wrote his own concurrence in which he said that the 2016 case was wrongly decided, but that's the law of the land now. Here's what he said, quote, the legal doctrine of stare decisis requires us, absent special circumstances, to treat like cases alike. And he went on to say that the Louisiana law places a burden on access to abortion just as severe as that imposed by the Texas law. Therefore, Louisiana's law cannot stand under our precedents. So, Kimberly, like we saw with the chief's DACA and LGBTQ votes, he caught a lot of heat for that one. And this is all coming as we're heading into the 2020 presidential campaign with the Supreme Court playing a big role, with even Democrats talking about the court more than they have heading into past elections. We had President Trump saying that he'd release a new list of potential Supreme Court nominees, Joe Biden was asked about his nomination strategy, and he had this to say. Um, I have, we are putting together a list of a group of African-American women who are qualified and have the experience to be in the court. I am not going to release that until we go further down the line of vetting them as well. So we have Roberts being criticized for his votes that liberals like, or at least don't hate for now, and we saw... For example, Senator Josh Hawley saying that the recent Bostock decision on LGBTQ rights marked the end of the conservative legal movement, but the chief somehow also resurrected that movement this week in a couple of other big cases. In CELA Law Against Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, he wrote for the Republican appointees in ruling that the structure of the bureau violates the separation of powers because it constrains the president from firing the single member head of the bureau for only inefficiency, neglect, or malfeasance. Okay, so that's a win for the conservatives, but the case as a whole isn't really a good sign for them in the Obamacare case that's coming next term, right? That's right, not for that case. Uh, Not that they were necessarily counting on Robert's vote there anyway, necessarily, but in this CELA law case, the court had to consider what to do now that it 
found the leadership structure of the Bureau unconstitutional. The petitioners had urged the justices to strike down the entire agency, saying the separation of powers violation couldn't be severed from the rest of the statute. But Roberts wrote, quote, we think it clear that Congress would prefer that we use a scalpel rather than a bulldozer in curing the constitutional defect we identify today, end quote. Okay, well, other than the scalpel part of it, what does this have to do with (laughs) Obamacare? Yeah, so the Obamacare challengers are making a similar argument that a constitutional defect in the law dooms the entire statute. Uh So actually, no justice voted to strike down the entire law. Justice Thomas and Gorsuch didn't join that part of the chief's ruling, but said only that the court didn't need to reach the issue in this case. And Roberts was once again on the conservative side of a 5-4 ruling in Espinosa versus Montana Department of Revenue. Here, the court reviewed a Montana scholarship program that gave tax breaks to residents who contributed to a scholarship fund for low-income students to attend private schools. The state's Supreme Court had nixed the entire program, finding that it violated the state's, quote, no aid provision in its state constitution. And that basically just says that no taxpayer funding can go directly or indirectly to religious schools. So Roberts said the no aid provision here violated the First Amendment's free exercise clause because it discriminated against students who wanted to take advantage of the program simply because of their religion. Yeah, so there were seven opinions in this case, concurrences and dissents. Every justice except Kagan and Kavanaugh wrote separately. So I just wanted to give a huge shout out thanks to the to SCOTUS for that one. That was that was a great day. Yeah, thanks. Now we can just, you know, maybe finish up the term sometime. <laughs> and so one of those dissents came from Justice Sotomayor. She called the majority's ruling, quote unquote, perverse. She said that, quote, without any need or power to do so, the court appears to require a state to reinstate a tax credit program that the Constitution did not demand in the first place, end quote. So that's that case. Uh, But this week, the court had two other, let's say, lower profile opinions. We're not done yet. We're not done. (laughs) We've got more to go. Two more cases. In one, the justices ruled against the Patent and Trademark Office in an eight-to-one decision in the Booking.com case. Some might remember that this was the first historic May argument that was live-streamed to the public. And it featured two female advocates, which isn't all that common at the U.S. Supreme Court. One of those was Lisa Blatt, who got another win for her legendary win-loss record. The justices agreed that Booking.com was a protectable trademark, even though the term booking is generic and would normally disqualify it for protection. The court said a term styled generic.com is a generic name for a class of goods or services only if the term has that meaning to consumers. Do we know if generic.com is a domain name yet? Hold on, checking. All right, so finally, the court handed down another case from the May sitting, USAID versus Alliance for Open Society. This was another closely divided ruling. This one split the justices five to three with Justice Kagan sitting this one out. That's right. And so before I continue talking about that case, I did check on generic.com. It says, click here to buy generic.com for your website name. So I'll put a pin in that. But getting back to this other case, so... To give a bit of the backdrop here, the Supreme Court had previously held it unconstitutional to require American entities to denounce prostitution and sex trafficking in order to receive federal funding to fight the HIV AIDS pandemic abroad. 
In this case, though, the question was how that First Amendment issue applied to foreign entities affiliated with U.S. groups. And so here, the Supreme Court distinguished the prior case, saying there is no violation here. And the majority noted that foreign entities don't have constitutional rights abroad, and it rejected the idea that the American entities' own First Amendment rights were being infringed by requiring their foreign affiliates to comply with the law. All right. Now that we have a lay of the land, let's bring on our guest. Kate Stetson is co-director of Hogan Lovell's nationally acclaimed Appellate Practice Group. Kate, thanks for joining us on Cases and Controversies. Very happy to be here. So uh, here we are. We're in July, and this is going to be the first time that the Roberts Court has gone past the last week of June. wonder what do you make of that? You know, it, it is. It's sort of unusual to be sitting here on July 2nd talking about what opinions the court still has to issue next week. I have been looking around a little bit, though, and, you know, I think in some ways the court tried to prepare us for this back when it issued its order that it would no longer have live arguments. Because one of the things the court said in that announcement was basically, we've this has happened before. This happened in 1793 and 1798 with yellow fever, and it happened again in 1918 with the Spanish flu that the court had to um, either continue arguments or not hold them at all until the next term. So while it's unusual, certainly in modern times, for the court to be going into July with opinions still to publish, I think there are occasional old precedents um, that the court is probably going to look at to say, you know, these are these are adjustments that we just have to make when something as consequential as a pandemic hits. So, Kate, Kimberly and I, earlier in the episode, we were chatting about some of the criticism that Chief Justice Roberts has got for recent rulings, like ones in the DACA and abortion cases. People are questioning his motivations, wondering what his strategy is, if he does have one. We're wondering what you make of all of this criticism at this moment in the Roberts Court history. Yeah, you know, I was I was thinking about something um, that that happened several years ago at this point because I think it's it's relevant to what's happened over the last couple of weeks. But you all will remember in. I think it was June of 2012 when the first Obamacare decision came out. I actually remember exactly where I was on that day because I was at a judicial conference. And I'm sure to the dismay of the panelists at that conference, most of us at the conference had run back to our hotel rooms at 10 a.m. so that we could be in our rooms on our computers when the decision started coming down. And I remember hearing through the walls of my hotel rooms gasps um, and reactions when the Obamacare decision hit the internet. And I remember at the time people criticizing the chief for what they thought was a departure from whatever ideology they thought the chief should have been carrying in that moment. And I remember thinking that this, this, that opinion and the ones that have come out lately, I think actually show, in my view, a, a consistent compass that the chief has. With respect to Obamacare many years ago, it was that his view of the law is that before you declare an an act of Congress unconstitutional, you try every key in that lock. And that includes the whether it was an appropriate you know, tax provision, not just the Commerce Clause question that was really driving that case. You try every key in that lock. And with respect to the DACA case, for example, 
Um, I think the turn square corners quote in his opinion, uh, in that opinion, really sums up the concern that was driving uh, his position in that case, that there is a right way and there is a wrong way to conduct oneself as an agency under the administrative procedure laws, and you have to turn square corners. Um, The same with, of course, in my view, the June medical decision. That was uh, an epic starry decisis case because the exact same case had come up to the court several years before. And the chief has enough of a, I think, kind of a constitutional compass and a very, very healthy respect for the institution that he leads that he's not going to be drawn off course when the exact same case comes up a few years later with a different Supreme Court um, hearing it. Well, only on cases and controversies will we ever talk about epic stare decisis um, and all <laughs> get excited. Um, one thing um, that we noticed from last term is that Chief Justice Roberts wasn't the only so-called swing justice. Actually, all of the Republican-nominated justices that term crossed over um, to give the liberals a, a win in a closely divided case, including Justice Alito for the very first time. Uh, but so so far this term, it's just the Chief Justice. And so I'm wondering what you think that says about the court in general or the Chief jo- Justice in particular. You know, I, I, I don't think it says anything necessarily about the court in general. I think it, it would be a mistake to over-extrapolate from this term for, for a few different reasons, but most prominent among them, you know, there have only been just over 50, I think, published opinions at this point. And, you know, within those published opinions, I think you know, there are, there are or with outside those public, published opinions, there are many cases that, of course, were not heard this term that have been put over to next term. So you have a far fewer than usual output of decisions and an unusual array of decisions that I think has led to, you know, still some interesting bedfellows in some circumstances. You know, I don't, in terms of what it says about the chief in particular, I think the chief very often these days, you know, has been described as essentially the successor to Justice Kennedy as the swing justice, quote unquote. And I think from a layperson's perspective, you know, that is probably exactly what it looks like because he has supplied the fifth vote. You know, in my view, for the reasons we were talking about earlier, you know, he he has been consistent in his approach and in his analysis. It has just happened, I think, that the nature of the cases that have fallen to that court this term have resulted in him joining with the you know, so-called liberals in some instances and not in, in others. And so, Kate, as all court watchers know, it's dangerous to predict what the Supreme Court's going to do, especially in this novel term that we're still not done with. But do you have any guesses as to when the court's going to actually wrap up with eight cases decided, um, aside from the interesting, you know, doctrinal developments we could have, we're, we're trying to, you know, maybe plan our summers here. And so as a, as an expert, we were hoping that you can tell us when we can, you know, maybe relax a little bit. I can, I can do that with a hundred percent certainty that this term will be wrapped up on the Sunday before the first Monday in October. Um, it, you know, if I had to guess, if I had to make a wild guess, I'm going to say July 22nd. Wow, July 22nd. Um, I was not anticipating get, getting that kind of bad news, and I'm, and I'm worried because she's pretty legit, and so I'm worried that she's going to be right. I'm breathing in and breathing out. Sorry. <laughs> All right, so 
We're getting the next opinions on Monday. We don't know how many we're going to get as usual, but whatever they are, we're going to make sure to tell you all about them on the next episode. And so as the court wraps up its turn, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts.